0: welcome to ask the cio industry insights edition here's today's moderator jason miller
1: welcome to the discussion my guest today is phil quaid the chief information security officer at fortinet phil thank you and and welcome to the discussion hi thanks jason for having me today let me set a little context for our discussion before we get started i don't think anyone would disagree that the cyber challenge agencies face minute by minute hour by hour day by day will decrease anytime soon. The latest statistics say in 2017, agencies endured 35,000 cyber incidents, which is a 14% increase over the 30,000, almost 31,000 incidents agencies reported in 2016. Of those more than 35,000 incidents last year, only five reached the threshold of what the government calls major incidents due to their impact on people or the technology. This comes as agencies are spending more money, more than $5.6 billion in cyber tools and services last year, and incorporating more capabilities from programs like this continuous diagnostics and mitigation, Einstein, automated information sharing, or AIS. But a recent report from OMB found, despite all these efforts over the last decade plus, agencies still face significant risks from cyber attack. OMB found 71 of 96 agencies were at risk or faced a high risk of cyber attack because of limited situational awareness, a lack of standard IT capabilities, and a lack of network visibility. So what's the answer to this never ending cyber challenge? More money, more tools, more training, how do you get people not to click on links? How do we make the change so the agencies and really the broader public sector, private sector can do better? Well, that's where my guest comes in. He's going to offer some solutions for how agencies can can deal with these ongoing cyber problems. Once again, Phil Quaid is the Chief Information Security Officer at Fortinet. Phil, let's just talk more broadly. There's a lot of security challenges around IT. We've talked a lot about that, but there's a new term that's maybe not emerging, but we're starting to pay more attention to called OT. Let's first define what OT is, and then let's talk about what some of those security challenges are.
0: IT is typically information technology. Typically, that we in the security business, we pay attention to affording IT confidentiality, integrity, and availability, protecting the bits and bytes in the systems to process those bits and bytes, no matter where they are. Uh, my company, Fortinet's is pretty good at, at doing that. We offer lots of solutions to address the problems you are talking about earlier, primarily by offering capabilities that are both broad and automated and very well integrated to reduce the complexity problem. Um, but your specific question to me this morning is about another discipline called OT, operational technology. So IT is mostly about protecting the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of bits and bytes. OT is primarily about protecting physical processes and things. So think robotics on assembly lines or valves on a oil and gas pipeline or electricity as it flows through wires. So OT, operational technology, is the class of technology that's used in very often in the nation's critical infrastructures and in the
1: private sector's uh, industrial automation applications. I think that definition is very helpful because people you know we hear a lot about critical infrastructure protection we hear about DHS needs to do more 80. 80- 5% of all critical infrastructure is owned by the private sector. But but I think putting the finer point on it is, as you said, protecting the valves of a, of a water system or protecting the, the pieces and parts of a telecom system. So what are some of the broad security challenges agencies are facing when it starts with, I guess, OT, and then we can kind of make our way back to IT? I'll break into two parts. So first part would be the OT, operational technology systems, that
0: some of our departments and agencies operate themselves. That's relatively uh, rare, but for example... Uh, the Department of Defense, whose mission in, in large part in, in protecting our country is to, to be able to project force in forward-deployed areas, well, they need to make sure that their back-end infrastructure is robust and secure and reliable. So that's where the, your operational technologies often exist in the Department of Defense bases, and quite honestly, also on their ships as well. So, the, yes, it's the case that some department agencies themselves have OT, And they, they they focus a lot of attention on it's safe and reliable operations. But the second segment I'd like to talk about is one that's uh, more national. It's not, it's not us government specific and that's the operational technology that's used to protect our critical infrastructures. And as you said, the critical infrastructure is primarily owned and operated by private sector. So, uh, you might say, why are we talking today about OT if it's primarily a private sector problem, but that's, that's not an accurate or precise point in fact critical infrastructure is everyone's problem and we can't go forward with solutions thinking that the government alone will lead to a more safe and reliable critical infrastructure nor we can assume that the private sector can do that by itself either the solution is some type of
1: collaboration between both sectors and we're actually starting to see that if you remember just in may the Energy Department released a multi-sector cyber strategy regarding, uh, uh, basically OT, but it was specifically focused on the energy sector. Uh, is, is that the type of collaboration and, and work that the government should be doing, a- acting as that kind of, if you will, bringing people together? The uh, Department of Energy is one of my my favorite examples of that. DOE has a,
0: by far, the largest center of operational technology expertise in the civil sector of the, of the U.S. government. The labs, especially... Uh, doing some really good research and I'll even shout out Idaho National Laboratory, which has a center of excellence where they do vulnerability research and lots of other technology stuff in the OT area. So it doesn't surprise me to hear uh, that DOE is looking to, to you know, nudge the country into a better spot. But that said, again, Department of Energy doesn't run our electric grids. They're,
1: they're operated independently by large companies and lots of small mom and pop shops. It almost sounds like what you're describing is the role NIST has been playing. If you think about the cybersecurity framework now, that's, uh, I guess, going into version three, I think. And they're trying to push it out to not just the critical infrastructure sector, but also the federal government's being told to use it. Is that the role you're thinking more that the government should be playing around the OT to bring people together? Or is there a bigger role? I wouldn't say that standard settings is the the first
0: Step I would take from the private it's sector. It's never anyone's favorite step, is it? Standards. <laughs> right. It, ta- it takes a long time and it, and it uh, seems like a paper pushing ordeal. Of course, standards are much, much more important than that. And I don't mean to belittle it. But to me, the first step I would take in a public private collaboration between the private sector and the government would probably start with information sharing. What's the situational awareness on the privately operated critical infrastructures themselves? And what's the government seeing from their perspective, whether it be from a threat or vulnerability side based on their own vulnerability research? So I would start with information sharing. Uh, there's probably, you bet, there's probably some good dialogue that ought to take place on architectures. And at some point you start talking about standards, but I, but standards standards would certainly be part of the solution, but it wouldn't be the first step.
1: When we talk about the challenges that that. Federal agencies are seeing there's a lot of push around the federal CISOs, chief information security officers. Are they starting to pay attention to this operational technology? Because as you said, it's not a private sector problem, even though they own 80 some percent, because we all depend on that private sector infrastructure. You bet. The critical infrastructures are essential to our personal well-being, our
0: economic well-being, and our government functionality. So again, we all care about critical infrastructure. So no uh, senior in in any department should be... uh, Cavalier about its security. Now that said, there are you know upwards of 16 or 17 or so critical infrastructures named in the United States and different departments have different roles. So as you mentioned earlier, the Department of Homeland Security has some roles with certain critical infrastructures, Department of Energy has others, and there's some other, other responsibilities as well. But again, primarily they are private sector run entities. And we
1: need to make sure that
0: the government's not preaching to the private sector
1: and, of course, vice versa. As you guys work with agencies and bring up this idea of operational technology, do the CISOs, do others kind of say, yeah, I understand that, but that's not my problem? Or are they starting to kind of understand that, hey, I have to be aware of and be a part of the solution? OT is indeed now
0: on the radar of the CISOs I'm talking to. I wouldn't have said the same as short as uh, three years ago. Lots of people talked about other, other terminology in this space is uh, industrial control systems, ICS, SCADA systems, supervisory control and data acquisition systems. They've been on the tip of people's tongue, but, but OT seems to be a rallying point where people understand that it's not just about the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of bits. It's about the safety and the reliability of physical processes and things that we ought,
1: all ought to care about. And I think that's the big change that I've seen as well, in the sense that through the DHS effort, through Energy Department, and, and as you mentioned, several others, there's been this bigger push from the government to say, OK, what can we do together to, to solve the problems? You mentioned information sharing is maybe the, the first step. Would you say there's two or three other things that can be done, maybe the short term, and then we can maybe even talk long term for, around OT? You bet. I like to start with information sharing because it's somewhat a somewhat of a... Um... We not, can we can all get behind it, right? You bet. <laughs> to a certain extent, it, right it's, it's, it's an
0: easy, it's easy, it's not very intimidating. but of course it that's just the first step of many steps. What we want to do ultimately is the collective we we want to get to the point where the uh, best to breed private sector solutions are being implemented to uh, help out both in the i t and ot space and we're able to share information um, across the public and private sector, but then get to the point where mitigations are happening at the speed and scale that are necessary to counter the most strategic threats. So what do I mean by strategic threats? Our most sophisticated or most adversarial countries in the world, they seek to do something called holding our strategic assets at risk. So when I was at in the intelligence community, the Defense Department at White House, we talked a whole lot about what can we do to make sure that we have our democratic institutions, our critical infrastructures that are in fact safe and reliable and available to support our way of life. Our adversaries don't think that they. They want to be able to hold those assets at risk. And what that means is they want to be able to influence our top-level decision-making in the government so that we might pause if we're considering a, an operational, a diplomatic, an economic, or some other type of action. Well, if they can cause us to question the availability, the safe and availability of reliable use of our critical infrastructures, they could actually change our foreign policy. So if they can hold our assets at risk, they can influence our decision-making. That's not something that... Uh,
1: any uh, U.S. government uh, is interested in having happen to them. I'm not sure people think about it that way either, that they think, well, yeah, it would suck if I lost my electricity or if they took down the banking sector, that would be a, a very serious thing. But if you think, if you step back and, as you said, more broadly... How does that play into the bigger diplomatic side of it or, or the, the operational side? You know, Based on your experience at the White House and, and, and the intelligence community, that's something that they spend a lot of time about. But is that starting to kind of creep into the civilian world, if you will, or the parts of DOD that maybe is not in the intelligence side? Yeah, increasingly so. The So the good news is that the folks who operate our, our power grid today, they're
0: no country bumpkins. They've been doing just fine for the past 50 or 75 years without the IT folks of the world or the government stepping in and telling them how to do their job. But what has changed is that the air gap that they used to very appropriately so hide behind in the critical infrastructure space is dying or dead. And what I mean is that uh, the security of many of our infrastructures previously was afforded by having a physical gap between the operations of those infrastructures and everybody else. So it was very hard for an adversary to, quote, jump that gap and do bad things. But what's different now is that that gap is gone because IT systems and OT systems are increasingly being connected for a variety of good, good reasons. But what that means is that, that that now creates an avenue for an adversary to get into those OT systems and cause effects to our systems that were impossible to do just five years ago.
1: I know probably the two most famous ones that you may or may not want to talk about is Stuxnet and then uh, Saudi Aramco. Do we feel like that that's potential and or is or has been happening in the US in some ways too? I mean, do you, is anything comes to mind publicly that you can talk to? I think you're, you're you're exactly right in referring to press reports of what, um, where some of these
0: malicious activities or attacks have indeed taken place, right? So the press has reported widely on what's happened in Ukraine many times and the uh, certain governments being identified being behind that, it's becoming the new way to project power, right? It's no longer about driving tanks across the Folder Gap in Europe. It's about being able to influence actions, physical actions, by taking cyber actions. So my company, so when I I joined my uh, Sunnyvale, California-based company, um, I talked to my CEO and said, in addition to serving as CISO, could I take on the job of running our operational technology critical infrastructure protection strategy. And to his credit, he said, yes, he recognized that the moment was here and Fortinet had something important to offer. So what we're doing is not only offering our IT solutions to address the problems that you talked about in your opening comments of this broadcast, But uh, we already have and are actively creating more and more OT solutions
1: as well. All right, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our discussion. You're listening to the discussion, Ask the CIO, Industry Insights Edition, sponsored by Fortinet, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM.
0: How can federal agencies fortify enterprise security? By relying on a trusted partner like Fortinet Federal, simplify cybersecurity complexity, eliminate single purpose applications. Break the cycle of purchase, atrophy, and purchase again. Take control from the data center to the cloud with Fortinet's integrated, future ready protection approach. And keep your agency assets safe. Learn more at fortinetfederal.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Ask the CIO, Industry Insights Edition, sponsored by Fortinet, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jason Miller, host of Ask the CIO. My guest is Phil Quaid, the Chief Information Security Officer at Fortinet. Phil, last time we were getting the definitions about OT and IT, we talked a lot about the, the, uh, this idea of operational technology, critical infrastructure protection. You, you, you brought up the kind of the, the former terms that we've been talking about, SCADA, industrial control systems. We've talked about the problem, so how do we solve it? So what are maybe some strategies that, that you guys at Fortinet are kind of looking at? The first part of our conversation
0: starts with respect. And what I mean is that Fortinet is traditionally known as a, a very, very good IT company but we wanna make sure that when we're talking to to clients who have OT needs, that we don't go there and just talk IT, not, not, just, not even the technologies nor the strategies, because they're different. Um, if you're in the OT space, you have uh, different vendors, you have completely different architectures. So in the IT, for example, in the IT world, we talk about the ISO, seven layer model, but in the OT world, there's something completely different. It's called the Purdue model, it's a different architecture. And so we need to make sure that as professionals, that we talk to the OT folks using their terminology and using their architectures. Now, that said, it's increasingly the case, though, that those two communities, OT and IT, are, as I mentioned earlier, they're cross-pollinating. So we need to get to know each other a little bit better. We need to speak each other's language, each other's strategies. So what we found is that some of our technologies at Fortinet do indeed need to be tailored uh, or even custom developed for, for the OT space. What we've also found is that there are some strategies that are indeed in common. For example, one of the uh, one of the slogans that we use is, "You can't defend what you can't see," right? So you have to have make sure you have really good visibility on your network, whether it's an IT or an OT network. And then, of course, you also want to make sure that that uh, you're able to defend not at your point of the place where the adversary chooses to uh, attack you, but you want to be able to defend at the time and place of your choosing. So, in the IT world, one of our strategies, or our foremost strategies at Fortinet is one of superb integration across our product line. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to defend at the place where where you're most capable to defend rather than your compromised endpoint. Let
1: me jump in just real quick to put a finer point on that. Most people will say, well, I'm gonna defend at the front end, the firewall, right? Before they even get through my firewall, I I want the firewall to stop them. And then I want the mitigation factors to come in after that. Is that kind of what you're talking to? Maybe I'm simplifying it, I probably am. No, that's a fair, fair question. What I mean is that we
0: all know uh, about the strategy of layered defense, right? You don't, want to have, you don't want to have a single high wall, and then once the adversary gets over that, you're toast. So layered defense is important. The foremost strategy today is having each of those layers of, of defense uh, fully integrated so that if, a, let's say that the adversary compromises an endpoint, well, you don't necessarily want to marshal all your defenses at a compromised endpoint pretty hard to do if it's compromised. So instead, what you'd like to be able to do is uh, set up your defenses at different places in the network so you could then isolate that compromised endpoint and make sure it can't do, other, do any more damage and then reconstitute as you see fit. So that's the idea of doing agile segmentation, uh, agile access control, but fully integrated so that you can, as I said earlier,
1: defend at the time and place of your choosing, not at the adversary's choosing. A lot of times we hear about the layered defenses is is all about the data. Just if you can protect the data, then everything else is, is secondary. If they want to take over this piece of hardware, that's fine. But if they can't get to my data, then the hardware is useless. It's a big brick. Where does the data play a role? Because you may say, well, in OT, data is not that important as it is to IT. But for some reason, I think that's not true. So you nailed it, right? As
0: I talked about earlier, OT is primarily about protecting the physical processes and things. So it might be a switch, it might be a motor, it might be a fan, it might be a, a chemical flowing through a, through a pipe. And so it's not necessarily the data you're trying to protect, you're trying to protect, you ensure the safe and reliable operation of that system. Now don't get me wrong, data is involved, but it's not protecting the data necessarily. That's a, protecting the data is a means to an end. The end is about protecting the physical processes and things. And that's what's different between the OT and IT space. The ends in the IT world is about protecting the data.
1: The ends in the OT space is about protecting a physical uh, asset. I can imagine that's hard for CISOs and others to get their head around who are not in the OT space all the time because they're being really told, it's all about the data. It's all about the data. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for so many years now. Are you seeing that when you talk to agencies or or the private sector, do they are they starting to again? I'll go back to are they getting their head wrapped around the fact that it is still about physical security in some points or physical processes security. Yeah, no, we're we're not there yet. We haven't crossed that
0: uh, that mountain peak. We're we're still talking past each other. I sometimes say that I go I go to conferences and meetings sometimes are IT, sometimes are OT. And what I found is that the two communities, they have different nouns and verbs. They have different jokes. They have different restaurants they go to after the conferences. They're, they're somewhat different cultures. And we need to make sure that we're addressing the culture problem as well. Because uh, as, as you said earlier, we need to get our head around that we're fundamentally trying to solve a different problem in the OT space than the IT space. But the, some of the strategies are indeed common. And we, ought, we need to leverage the best of breed uh, across those boundaries, IT, OT boundaries.
1: This is actually a great segue to maybe a, step back and take the 50,000 foot view. And, and one of the things that you've written about in your blog posts on, on, on Fortinet is this idea of a cybersecurity moonshot. We hear this often, you know, if we can go to the moon, why can't we fix this or whatever this is? Maybe talk about that blog post a little bit and, and what points you were trying to make. Yeah. I'm
0: I'm somewhat annoyed by, by, uh, by people who say my cybersecurity moonshot is to secure the internet. Well, you know, no kidding. I, that would be my moonshot too, but it's not, it, it's, it's not well-defined. So, uh, so what we've done, is we've, we've put a little time into talking about uh, an important and practical moonshot in uh, what we call it is a, a national counter DDoS program, counter denial of service program. So the situation today is that each organization, whether it's a federal government or a private sector organization, uh, an entire country might pick on them and do a DDoS, distributed denial of service attack on that organization. And so they're left with trying to set up a defense against a whole country. Well, that's just not a fair fight. It shouldn't work that way. Um, so rather than spending money individually all all across these organizations having a counter-DDoS capability, what if the country decided to say, I need to set up a national counter-DDoS capability that could be used no matter who needs it. And it would be some combination of public and private sector. So for example, what we would recommend is it would certainly involve the carriers, right? So what the carriers can do is help with the bandwidth problem. A second piece of it would probably be uh, some companies are really good about segmentation, either segment off the assets you're trying to protect or even segment off the attacker. And lastly, it would probably involve the U.S. government, right? So United States Cyber Command might be a great place to actually to uh, do a mitigation upstream in foreign cyberspace. So the, the result is what you'd have is a public-private collaboration could be used by many people rather than everyone having to roll their own. And importantly, not only is it to solve an important national problem, but it creates uh, what I call muscle memory, where the public and private sector learn to work together to to take on cyber problems
1: like we did in the Apollo program. This actually sounds like potentially a, a new area of collaboration, new, a new approach to bringing public and private sector together. Where do we get started? Is is this a, let's have a big meeting somewhere, or is what can be done to kind of get this process rolling? Believe it or not, having a big meeting would, would be a good start. And I don't mean a, a crazy size meeting, but yeah, you,
0: you get those communities together that I just talked about. The uh, the service providers, the segmentation providers, and perhaps the Department of Defense. And yeah, w- and then plan out what would it take to implement this thing. Now, a longer-term problem we can and should solve, we should and can solve, is uh, creating a future workforce. So right now, today, if you want to serve your country, you put on a uniform, right? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. And that's a very honorable way to serve the country. Not everyone can do that for whatever their own personal reasons are. But I believe that providing cybersecurity to our critical infrastructure is a new way of serving the country, meaning we can inspire people to serve the country in different ways without putting on the uniform. So I think that we should be uh, talking to our high school and college folks about critical infrastructures more and more, operational technology more and more, and create a graduate and apprentice level of people who understand not only IT security. Not only OT security, but I'm going to add one more to that, but they understand physical security because ultimately critical infrastructure protection is about doing all three of those at the same time. So we could graduate apprentices in uh, critical infrastructure security and then gradually move those apprentices up to journeymen and then eventually into masters. And at that point, we have a self-sustaining workforce that, that can protect our country, whether it's critical infrastructure, industrial automation, or plain old but important IT.
1: You hear a lot of in Congress about a cyber core that uh, Congressman Will Hurd is talking about. You, you've seen this uh, idea before of some kind of public-private sharing or training. Do you see that in that same vein where almost a, like a AmeriCorps but a cyber core? That's not bad. The AmeriCorps uh, analogy is not a bad one. Um, I'm not sure we're being
0: aspirational enough right now in, in getting, this, getting this thing going. Yeah, the good news, for example, is there's lots of people that come out of uh, that are well trained that come out of the government, the Department of Defense, especially. Um, Fortinet has something called a 40 Vets program, where we uh, take uh, people uh, leaving the the armed services and we integrate them into a variety of cyber jobs, both inside and outside Fortinet. And that's what I'm talking about. It's going to take some cross fertilization of people from private sector to public and vice versa, and then we'll learn each other's perspectives, and we'll learn how to work better together. And, and that's how we're going to solve this critical infrastructure protection
1: problem, by working together. You're describing, obviously, a long-term solution to this problem. In the short term, are there things that agencies and or the private sector can do, even from a workforce perspective?
0: The, the answer is yes. This is where technology can be our friend, where uh, it, it's silly of us to keep throwing technology at the problem without also acknowledging the complexity problem, right? Right. If the industry keeps offering a whole bunch of point solutions that solve small problems, what we're going to do is we're going to overwhelm the operators of both OT or IT systems, and they're going to start making mistakes, right? Humans are fallible. So what we need to do is provide these solutions. We need to integrate them a whole lot better so they work as a team. And what that's going to do is it's going to reduce the complexity in how we operate these systems. So near term, you bet, we need to integrate our solutions and we need to actively work to reduce the complexity in how you manage them.
1: And I think that's why there's so much excitement and so much p- attention being paid to the orchestration, the automation, the, the AI, the machine learning, robotics process automation, all this emerging technologies. Do you see that also as, as a as a key or a, a one answer to this problem? It is. It's, I want to be careful to uh,
0: not imply that AI is here today and ready to solve the world's, world's peace, world's problems. It's not. There are some really important building blocks towards AI. You just mentioned a, a great handful of them. It's automation. It's integration. It's orchestration. It's uh, data grooming. Uh, there's lots of things like that that are building blocks towards AI. So where we are as a as a sector right now, we're in machine learning. We're in deep learning, and we're gradually moving towards AI. Now, um, there are some places where it's very very useful today. In fact, we're using it in my shop, right, where we're we're looking at. Gobs and gobs of data to characterize threats in new in new ways that human beings would just never have, have a chance of doing, and automatically pushing that out to customers who can put it to use. But I do think you're right that uh, um, certainly automation and integration are are the keys to reducing complexity, and those are the building
1: blocks towards AI. Phil, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. But before I let you go, what's the one takeaway or two takeaways from our conversation about OT, operational technology, that both federal cyber executives should keep in mind, but also the private sector?
0: OT needs to be on everyone's radar, right? If you're just an IT strategist or specialist, you're doing good work, but you need to understand that increasingly physical processes and things are going to be important for you for how you do your IT job. The flip side is also true. If you're an OT specialist, you need to know that IT is more and more and more creeping into your architecture. So what we need to do as a community is figure out where we can do some cross-pollinization of technology and solutions. And, uh, you know, I I think that... uh, I think
1: that there's some companies out there that, that are well-postured to provide that. All right. Good advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the discussion, Ask the CIO, Industry Insights Edition, sponsored by Fortinet, on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. I'm Jason Miller, the host of Ask the CIO, and I'd like to thank my guest, Phil Quaid, the Chief Information Security Officer for Fortinet. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Ask the CIO.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ask the CIO Industry Insights Edition, sponsored by Fortinet on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion is available on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Ask the CIO.